I think conversations are important. In the age of social media, discourse seems to be dumbed down to post reactions and quippy one-liners. My hope for this podcast is that it offers a stage for people to give their perspectives on all sorts of topics and ideas. As a visual storyteller myself, I also find great value in words and the stories that can be created with them. Today I'll be talking with Josh Hobson, who is a lecturer at Eastern Washington University. Originally from Florida, Josh offers a unique perspective on analog photographic processes, so today we're going to discuss creativity and see where that takes us. So without further ado, my name is Connor Bacon, and this is A Lapse in Time. Josh Hobson. It's uh, great to have you on today, man. Uh, do you want to just start out by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me, Connor. Um, my name is Josh Hobson. I'm currently uh, a lecturer in the art department at um, Eastern Washington University. I'm you know, in the creative field. I wouldn't necessarily say creative industry, um, but I, I, am, I am teaching photography primarily, and um, uh, I'm definitely more on the kind of uh, academic side of things. Um, which is where I uh, feel most comfortable these days. But yeah, so I mean, I, I did. I have an MFA in photography. I did that at uh, University of Florida, which is in, in Gainesville. It's like a little college town, um, kind of in central Florida, uh, in the swamps. Um, uh, if you're a college football fan, you may have heard of that. Um, <laughs> but um, so yeah, I'm I'm from Florida originally, and I I um, moved out here for work. So that's why I find myself in the inland Northwest. Cool. Um, what, uh, so you're from Florida originally, which part of Florida are you from? I'm from Tallahassee originally. I got my kind of photographic start in high school and we had like a little bathroom that had been converted into a dark room. And you know, the, the minute I put a piece of paper in that developer and watched an image come out, I was totally hooked. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's not a little cliche to say, cause a lot of people have that same experience, but it is magical and it's pretty wonderful to see my students have the same kind of reaction to it when they get to see it for the first time. Are you doing um, analog photography then currently? Like, what are you teaching at Eastern? Under normal circumstances, I would teach uh, analog, uh, digital, and then I have like an advanced course that is um, kind of, I would say like it's kind of an independent study type of course. Uh, students who have taken those other ones can kind of take their their practice in whatever direction they would like. Uh, I also teach uh, history of photo, uh, which is an art history course, and then various other little things as the departments need me. I actually am teaching, I just finished um, teaching digital photo for the design department as well. Oh, cool. Um, so so that, was, that was interesting, different approach, different students, um, but really fun. So are, are you guys currently in session, like due to the COVID stuff, are you teaching like small classes or are you guys all fully online right now? We're fully online. Uh, I had the option to do like hybrid stuff, but I, I opted out of it. We're just fully online. I guess it didn't really answer your question, but I do teach analog. We have a really nice dark room up there in the art department and I teach it as often as I can at, uh, at the moment. That's just once a year, but you know, ideally I'd teach it more than that, but sure. once a year seems uh, to be working at the moment. And so the main overseeing topic that I wanted to go over today um, was just like creativity in times like this, how it's important, why it's important, and then like also like how to do it, I think. I know personally like creative block is huge, um, especially in like stressful times like this where, um, you know, it's it's hard to even get your camera and go out and like, uh, I guess, remedies to that and how, um, you know, I don't know if you're shooting currently or how you deal with that, but maybe just like your insights on, yeah, I don't know, creativity, why it's important right now. Well, um, I, I guess I would say that um, I do acknowledge that it's super important right now, um, but in, in practice, it's been more aspirational than something that I've actually been able to, um, to do. Um, and I, I think part of it is just personal, you know, like my, um, my wife and I just had another baby, so we have a five-month-old in the house um, and, a, and a three-year-old. Um, and so, you know, finding the time to be a dad, husband, professor, and artist is kind of, is kind of hard. And so 
unfortunately, like one of those categories usually falls by the wayside. And at, at the moment, that's my studio practice. But I have been kind of revisiting older projects and um, kind of re-editing them and um, reordering them and kind of documenting and just doing some of the administrative, kind of the boring stuff that, that art practice requires that I tend to avoid. But but this is but this has been a good time to do some of those things, uh, and also I, I wouldn't say I'm a procrastinator, but I do I would say I'm an incubator, and maybe maybe it's the same thing. It's just like a rosier that. way to say it, but um, <laughs> way, I, have, yeah. I have a lot of like I've, I've been planting a lot of seeds, you know, like like reading a lot and um, thinking about different topics and uh, approaches that come up with my students, and hoping that I can kind of act on on some of those in the near future. I have a different a kind of interesting perspective guiding like students through this new medium and helping them kind of feel confident with their skills and also, you know, kind of parlay those skills into some sort of creative output and they're having trouble too. Right. So um, I've had to kind of come up with some, some new ways to, to talk about a studio practice and finding different artists who, um, who, who work in different ways that are more, more applicable to kind of the way we have to live right now. So kind of like small, like studio based projects, versus kind of large scale projects that require lots of different people and traveling and, and things of that nature. So, so that, that's been part of my focus for myself and um, as an educator. And I keep on coming back to this, this quote, and I love this quote before COVID, but now I, you know, I say it to all my classes probably um, way too many times. They're probably annoyed with this, but uh, I think it's Orson Welles who said that the, the enemy of the artist is the lack of limitations. So like, if you don't have anything to kind of press up against, if you don't have any, if you don't, if you don't have a deadline or like material scarcity or whatever your limitations are, it can be really hard to create, right? If you just have endless time and endless resources, which few people do, what would you do with it? That's a really hard question. So try to kind of make them realize that while this is a real drag, <laughs> the way the way that we have to live right now, it's also an opportunity to create some real you know, very specific limitations on what we can do. And we can use those limitations to kind of create points of tension, right? And that's where I think a lot of good work um, comes from is like a place of conflict or a place of tension. So yeah. just, kind of, just kind of reframing reframing it in that way kind of has allowed for some freedom for, for my students and, and myself. Yeah, no, that's great. I think um, it's... Uh... I don't want to say a paradox, but I think that as creative people, it, you know, I, I want the freedom to be able to do these things and I want to like kind of make what I want to make. And, you know, and there's a, that little bit of drive on one end, but then on the other end, when you have full reins on that and where it's like, okay, cool, do whatever you want. I almost get this panic moment where I'm like, well, what do you mean do whatever I want? Like there has to be at least some point of uh, like some end point for anything. And um, yeah, to that point, I think, yeah, like having restraints or, you know, even a little bit of a struggle can be really valuable, I think, to creating good work too. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, you see that or you actually have to probably impose that as an instructor and, you know, give people those guidelines. And um, it's probably is that, you know, some of them don't see it in that way um, and they don't want to engage with the time that they're living in, like directly. And they would prefer to kind of work, work in kind of a fantasy realm. <laughs> sure. Um, and other people are just like, yeah, this is this is the reality. This is this is what this is what I'm living day to day. And I'm going to I'm going to use this right as um, as, as fuel. And I think the people that can do that are learning a really valuable lesson because this will end, right? But then there'll be something else, right? You yeah, know, there's always something. You know, um, an anecdote that I tell my students is like, you know, the majority of my kind of professional experience is, is within within academia, right? So like various teaching gigs and grad grad school and things of that nature. But b before that, as an undergrad, um, my my practice was very like studio based. I needed like a lot of space. I needed all these lights and then I needed, you know, my analog chemistry and all this stuff. And then I graduated and I suddenly didn't have any of that stuff anymore. I didn't have my community. I didn't have my, uh, the facilities. Uh, and then I moved to South Korea to teach and I ended up living in, you know, an apartment that's basically the size of the office that I'm currently sitting in. Um, and, and suddenly like all the stuff that I, for, for years I had, I had kind of relied on disappeared, right? That was like a major crisis in my work. And then in the, the year that kind of passed after that, um, I totally changed my, totally changed my approach, right? To kind of reflect this new reality that I found myself in. And that became the dominant kind of way I worked for for many, many, many years um, until I returned to grad school to study more. And then I 
did another 180 kind of went back to the studio again yeah um, but it, it i don't know i i feel like learning to be able to do that for yourself is is vital right to to sustain something that as, as you know requires a lot of dedication and sacrifice yeah yeah, absolutely. I wanted to go back to something you'd said a little bit ago, just to tie into that. So you, you talk about like planting seeds. How do you do that in regards to whether you're teaching or if you're in like the studio atmosphere where maybe you're a little bit more immersed and you're probably a little bit more invested in um, the actual work itself? Um, how do you go about planting those seeds and like, what does that look like for you? Um, like planting seeds for my own um, for my yeah, own to like garner your own, yeah, garner your own productivity, your own creativity, um, whatever it is that like, like, I guess just the starting point, I think for mm -hmm. a lot of people, that's maybe the hardest part. I, I find myself oftentimes having all these ideas of projects I want to do in my head. Um, it's just the actual, like, um, you know, how do I get started on that? And um, I think creative people in general, maybe have a similar, um, way that their, you know, brain works where it's like, they can break down little chunks and they can kind of dissect things and dissect reality and come at things from a different approach. But maybe, you know, having a big amorphous tasks where it's like, create a movie, like, for instance, it's like, well, that's crazy. Like, you can't start there. It's like, well, how do you how do you get to that point? And like, you know, what are your starting steps? What are those seeds? And how do you plant those? Yeah, well, recently, most of my work like starts with it starts with text, right? It starts with writing. Um, like before I well, actually, before that, it starts with reading. So uh, a lot a lot of my work, I would say it's kind of it's based in material culture. Like I'm really interested in like the materiality of, of photography, you know, like, like like paper, its tactility, its flatness, you know, like grain, these, these kind of like very specific things to the photographic medium. I like playing with that, but I'm also really interested in, in image and how those two things kind of intersect. But I'm also really interested in, and this is connected to my, my teaching, like kind of social, socially engaged artworks. Like I, constantly ask myself, like, can art do more? Right. Um, I love a purely formal photograph that's kind of like rooted in beauty, but I also like, personally, I, I want, I want to make things that, that have the potential for change, either like, either like societal change or like kind of personal change in the, in, in, in the viewer beyond just like a beautiful facade. So, um, all that being said, you know, a lot of times, um, ideas for projects start with just like reading, just like an article about, maybe environmental destruction or about politics of the border or, or, or various, various things like that kind of get my mind, get my mind turning. And, uh, and then I'll engage in lot, lots of research. And as I kind of read more oftentimes, you know, maybe it's like in the middle of the night or like in the shower, whatever, um, you know, playing with my kid, like some kind of an image or an, an approach, just kind of some way that I can kind of connect this data and information that I've been absorbing and how to like kind of parlay that, synthesize that with, with like my photo practice, like, like some kind of connection or visual metaphor or something will kind of kind of come up. Um, and at that point, I feel ready to kind of start down the studio route. And then I'll, I'll engage in a series of little experiments, um, things with, that have very low expectations and tiny, like tiny projects that were, where nothing is at stake. Right. right. And, and so, and then I'll, I'll kind of do that for a while and until I make enough mistakes that something that, that something clicks, I guess mistakes are a big part of my, my process. You know, uh, a lot of people try to, try to avoid mistakes, but I, I think kind of as creative people get more mature um, in their practice, they kind of realize, Hey, mistakes are kind of where it's at. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but um, for, for, for me personally, it, it rarely starts with like an image or a uh, process. It usually starts with something like that I've read or something I've listened to, um, and then I kind of research it and then find a way to formalize it with photography. Yeah. Obviously, the, the analog thing, right, like pulling film out. Um, and, and seeing it and having it be tangible, like that has its own draw. And I totally understand that. And I think, um, you know, anyone who doesn't even take photos can get that, that it's like, you just can't get that from digital no matter what. Like there really is no other match for that, like feeling of pulling film out. Um, is like what outside of that, outside of like the appeal of analog, um, like what is it creatively that you're um, like drawn to in an image? I know you'd said like you want it to have like a bit of a narrative, but like do you have any specific inspirations or people that you admire or, you know, their photography that really um, has influenced the way that you shoot? Yeah, um, I, I, should, I should have a list. Um, because yeah, no, I kind of put you on the spot. I'm like, Hey, can um, you just name like <laughs> six people you love? <laughs> I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, it, it would be, it would be sad if I couldn't, um, just yeah. name six photographers that I love. 
but before I do that, I want to just uh, comment on, on what you said about analog. You know, um, a, a lot of discussions that I have with my students is about like, what is the purpose of analog? Is analog and digital really that like that difference? Is, is this a discussion that is even worth having anymore? Um, Absolutely. And maybe, maybe it's a generational <laughs> thing, you know, yeah. because, you know, I, I started doing this, I guess there was some digital around, but 1998 or 99 is when I like first started uh, dabbling with photography in high school yeah and um anyway I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that a digital camera can make just as good an image i think right i think we've passed this the, this this time where we need to like worry about like which one is superior sure um but you know it, it's hard to argue that the that the process isn't different and so i think even people who intend to always be digital photographers can still learn a tremendous amount from shooting film. If nothing else, patience, right? Economy. Um, I actually, um, I didn't directly comment on it, but the, one of your social media posts, uh, probably Instagram, you're talking about how you were trying to get everything right in camera, right? So you didn't have to spend so much time in post. Well, I mean, that's something that film teaches you, right? Like you can't immediately see that you're over underexposed or your focus is off or whatever. Right. So it just it just kind of like requires that you be very very careful and intentional, um, and I think kind of once you do that with film and then you take it to digital, it just makes you a better photographer. Like period, um, and so that that's kind of that's why I'm attracted to to analog, um, but but also like the kind of hands on um, the hands on nature of it. Um, maybe it's like nostalgia or I'm like fetishizing um, <laughs> the, the history. Uh, of the medium a little bit, but that's, that, that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, I think that even in the actual differences, right? Like things that I think we can actually pick out and be like, this is vastly different. And it's hard. Cause I, I have a hard time actually proving this. Like, I don't, I, it, it feels a little bit, a bit like a theory to me. Um, but it like, it also feels very tangible, like shooting medium format. When I shoot on my six, seven and I get something, you know, I shoot on a 105 millimeter, um, F two eight, I think it is, or two four, and those images, I don't care what full frame camera you're using at that focal length, or even at a similar equivalent focal length, it just doesn't look the same. And I, I can't point, you know, to what that actually is, like what that look is, you know, whether it's like a, a better highlight roll off, or um, you know, just the depth of field just feels a little different. I think like there's just something about film that like inherently feels better to me. Um, it is a personal preference. I think if you get into like pixel peeping and, you know, you get into the more technical, whatever, there really isn't a big difference. You have these, you know, Hasselblad medium formats, um, that shoot a hundred megapixels that like you can infinitely crop in on or whatever. Like I think no matter what they're, you know, you're going to get a good image out of either of them. Uh, but to that point, I think analog, man, it just like the way that it looks, it, yeah, it just feels better. Like, I, I don't know. And like, it may, it could be that nostalgia thing too. And maybe I just play into that. Um, but it does feel like tangibly better to me. Yeah. I, I would agree. It does feel different. I, and, and I think it's, I think you're on point there when you say that it feels different, like mm. it, it, it's easier to say that it feels different than it, than it looks different. Right. Um, and I, I guess we could figure out why it looks different, but yeah, there's, there's something, there's something about, I don't know. It, it just kind of, yeah, I don't know. You, you said it better than I can, but um, it just simply feels better. It feels different. It's kind of like listening to vinyl versus an MP3 stream. You know, it just sounds different. There's something warm about it. Yeah. Um, there's a reason people still record tracks on on tape. You know. Yeah. Um, even though they don't have to. Right? I, I like this idea of like active choices. Right. Like there there was a time when there weren't as many active choices there. There was just like the default, right? Film was the default or black and white film was the default um, for, for, for art, you know? And then even, even after color film came out, black and white film is still kind of the default for art making. Um, and then all, all, all that's, all that's changing. And now there's not really a default, I, I guess, I guess digital would be the default, but um, choosing to work in analog or choosing to work in a, in a monochrome, um, is an active choice. It's not just like something that you had to do. Um, sure. So I, I think that's really interesting, you know, that, that, um, that we can choose it for its very specific qualities, right? And every image doesn't look great on film. Sometimes it needs to be like this kind of cold, tack sharp digital image. And that's what whatever project you're working on kind of calls for. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really a proponent of like 
privilege the project and privilege the idea over um, over the medium um, or the specific approach, right? Um, just kind of have them all as tools in the tool belt and then give the idea its due, right? Um, and allow allow the idea to kind of guide um, the formal approach. Yeah, you make a good point there. Um, I don't want to glide over that, that film does not always look good. <laughs> there's, there's many times where you get a full roll back and it's definitely not as economical you know, I think that's probably a given, but um, you'll get a full roll back and you'll shoot in the same, you know, the same camera, same lens. You, you thought the same lighting and one shot will have this insane green cast and then this other one will come out beautiful. And it's like just that kind of uh, unpredictability of the film that like, you know, it makes it awesome. And sometimes you get images where you're like, holy shit, I couldn't have taken that. I couldn't have edited that. There's no way I could have made that look that good with digital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I get it right out of the camera with film, uh, but then you also get. 20 other shots on a 35 millimeter roll where you're like, fuck, <laughs> like what, like what have I done? Like I just wasted all that money on those. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, like I said, I think you get, you get very happy results out of it, but to your point, there are times where film is garbage, like where it just comes sure. out not looking good at all. I always say to myself and students, if you get one like dynamite shot off a roll of film, that's a win. It was worth it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, like you, sh- you can't expect every shot to be, to be a winner, um, you know, a, a big part of photography is is the editing out, right? Um, yep. uh, I can't remember who said this, but you know, it's photography is the art of selection, right? It's about like of all the different things in the world to select and put in that in that square or uh, rectangle. Like, why choose that, right? Yeah. And, and the same thing goes um, with all your outtakes, right? You don't show everyone everything you did; you just show them the best um, or the most successful ones. So. so um, yeah, one good shot off a roll, I think, um, is, is a success. Yeah. Um, I had a question. So yeah. you might have a similar answer to what how I feel about it. Um, but is photography reality to you? Um, and then wh- why or why not? Um, yes. I, I think we should differentiate between photography and the photographic. Um, sure. Because I think they're different things. Okay. Um, I, th- I, think, I think photography requires reality like that's you know um i I don't know i'm a big fan of abstract expressionism paintings like like mark rothko and uh, helen frankenthaler and things like that um and i would put those in the category of like non-objective works right there's no longer any kind of connection to reality um they're not trying to represent anything or mirror reality in any way. You can make a photograph that is unrecognizable, but that doesn't change the fact that on some level it is recording or indexing the real world, right? There is still this tenuous thread that connects a photograph to reality, whether whether we recognize it or not, right? Um, Just something super zoomed in out of a science journal looks like an abstract artwork, right? But if like, if you have a trained eye, you know exactly what it is you're looking at. Um, sure. So, so I, I guess the answer, my personal answer, uh, a lot of people disagree with this is that photography requires the real, right? Um, on a, a little bit. Now the photographic is different, right? The photographic is just something that looks like photography or like looks like the real world, but it doesn't have to have any actual connection. There are like computers that can make images that look to us like photorealistic depictions of the real world, but there is in reality, no connection to reality any longer. It just looks that way. And so I think that's the way that that's why we need to differentiate between photography and the photographic. Sure. Um, so that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I half and fully agree. Um, I think I felt like it's hard to argue with that, like deconstruction of photography and how it is tied into reality, because I I do agree. I think obviously you need you need reality to create a photograph. Um, That being said, so I think this is the part where I would slightly differentiate or maybe I half agree is I think that, you know, in a in a burst shot of a family, right, a family interacting and you get that one shot and you get the one where they're all, you know, smiling perfectly and it's all portrayed as like. And so I guess take reality loosely in my okay. definition of it, um, ne- not as much of a, a definitive um, idea. I think, you know, you get that you get that moment of, you know, everyone's smiling, everyone's happy, everyone looks fantastic. But I think that the person behind the camera can also influence things 
quite a bit as well. And so it might not be, that might not actually be the reality. So um, I think, you know, especially with street photography, when I think of street photography and taking pictures of um, people in landscapes, um, especially like downtown Spokane, um, I've taken a couple that I'm just like, man, like that, like I had this one, um, it's, I'm looking at it right now, it's up on my wall. And this guy was walking by one of the um, buildings downtown um, and the stairs just lined up perfectly. And this guy was like, had a really bad heroin lean. And, you know, he, he leaned back and like looked up at the same angle as all the staircases on this building. And it just so happened I had my camera out and I took a picture. And like, I think that image kind of was like, wow, like it, it happened so perfectly. And I think for a, a moment that was reality and that was real. And that was, you know, but at the same time, like it portrays, I think, a story that isn't you know, that yeah. isn't real. Um, yeah. So I think I agree on both accounts. I think it totally is. It has, to, you need to have reality. Um, you know, I think the, all those things had to happen to line up perfectly, but at the same time, like that photograph and at the end, although it wasn't edited, I didn't really do anything to it. I just turned it black and white. Like I don't, I don't think it's true to the moment, but yeah, I, I also, I totally agree with what you're saying. Cause I, I took your question in a slightly different way, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you used the word true um, because um, this idea of like, you know, like the perfect family photo where like moments before and moments after everyone's screaming and crying and fighting, um, that one two fiftieth of a second where everyone is happy and smiling and photogenic and looking in the right, whatever, right? Yeah, that actually happened, <clears throat> right? Um, Right, but it, it it doesn't encapsulate like a, a complete truth about the people. Maybe that's a better way to ask it. In the future, I'm going to ask whether or not photography is okay. true, because I think that that's that's probably. I think a photography better, yeah. can be true. Um, I think. Sure. Uh, again, um, an unattributed quote. Maybe you can look it up. But um, uh, so, someone um, that I've, I've read in the past said that um, cameras can't lie, but photographers can. Yeah. Right. So, like, I think. I think the device, the machine itself, um, just does a thing, right? Um, just right. whatever's in front of it, it just collects the light that's reflecting off that thing and inscribes it on your film or your <clears throat> your digital sensor. Um, but we all know that in the you know in in certain hands, the the, pho the photograph can be extremely manipulated, and this gets back to this like um, the art of selection thing, right? Like, why do you why do you like crop over a few degrees to like cut out the trash can right or like you know yeah um, what, what, whatever it is right like we're kind of subconsciously always like making things more photogenic um like trying to make the world look more like a photograph um so i, I think that's potentially interesting um but this is a big topic right like the truth value uh sure. truth value inherent in photography uh and i think even though we all not all, but most people know maybe not how to do it, but they know potentially that photography can be manipulated really, really easily. We still largely believe it. I think, um, I, I think there would need yeah. to be some red flag for you to, to look at a photograph and to think that it was untrue. Um, I think this is a potential problem. You know, um, we still have a lot of faith in the photographic image as being the purveyor of truth. Um, even though there's, plenty of evidence that it is certainly not that right yeah you even see i mean deep faked video now like you can't even trust video which i think is where um I, I so many times and i'm sure you probably run across this as well you know you're maybe this will be a moment to educate the public on um inter internet etiquette um so many times you'll run across things online you know on facebook that are so clearly mm -hmm. photoshopped and then there are some where they aren't very clearly photoshopped, but you're like, well, okay, but this could be photoshopped and it wouldn't be extremely difficult to do. Um, especially like you'll see hateful signs, you'll see, um, you know, stuff like that on white backgrounds that are like, you know, anyone can do this stuff. And then it, it's insane how, how easily that sways the general public and people, you know, will be in just an uproar over the dumbest shit. And it's like, like th that probably isn't even real. That probably has no basis in reality. It still reigns true. The thing your mother was telling you when you were younger is don't trust everything you see on the internet. Um, or, you know, don't trust everything you read in books even. Everything, I think, is subject to human Absolutely. bias. And, um, yeah, and you can be swayed so easily by things. I think we're lazy um, also, you know, um, like a photograph is like totally. shorthand <laughs> for, some, for some truth, you know, and we just kind of 
mm-hmm. especially if it falls into our confirmation bias. If it, you know, if it, if it shows us something that we already believe to be true, then we're even more likely to believe that that is in fact true. You know, th- there's a lot of scholarship on, even in the earliest, even, you know, the first decades of photography, it was rife with manipulation. Like people immediately saw how it could be done. M- mostly it wasn't for like nefarious purposes in the beginning. It was for like playful sure. things, but you know, um, I don't know, a lot of, you know, photography coming out of the Soviet union is a great example of like the, the like amazing skill of the analog kind of manipulators to like make these like false realities um, that, that's by like cutting and clipping and trimming and doing like analog things too, not on Photoshop where they're, you know, yeah, it's unreal. <clears throat> um, and just, just one, one more thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to launch into a lecture here, but, um, I, I think a lot of this comes back to like our, um, love and respect for the machine and technology. Um, you know, I don't think it was always like this, but after, you know, after, uh, the industrial revolution and modernity and like this kind of love hate relationship with technology and the machine, like that's kind of like, that's partly why we love photography so much because it was originally seen as this kind of like arbiter of objectivity, right? Because it was a machine. Um, people ignored the fact that it's, it's actually like a, a multi-layered facade that is like totally loaded with belief and ideology and people's opinions and 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 whatnot but you know we we believe in the machine to like kind of be pure and to be naive right um and i think we still kind of believe that to be true in light of all of these kind of like negative ways that you know photography can be portrayed and how we um you know ingest some of this stuff and how we take in um, some of these things like maybe we could talk a little bit about like remedies to that and how to like as a creative and as a creative person um how to i don't want to say like be genuine in what you do because i don't always think that that's necessary nor you know required of someone who's creative is to be genuine in their mm-hmm. creations but like i guess yeah just like maybe some remedies for some of the bad um well, I do agree that there's no requirement for a creative pe- person to be genuine or truthful. There's still plenty of room for the creation of, of, of fantasy. Right? That's one of the things that photography does really, really well. Um, you know, most advertising photography is the creation of some sort of fantasy. Right? As far as uh, you mean, like remedies for the image maker or for people who are consuming? Yeah, I guess to to kind of lead the. To lead the question, um, I guess, so in advertising, so I work in advertising, and I think I always have this bit of everything I see now, I look at with just this almost like negative view when I see advertising because I understand what what everyone's doing in advertising. I get it. You know, it's, um, you, you know, you don't need these things. You really don't need half the things that you are you know, advertised into thinking you need. That being said, I think you can ethically advertise. Um, and so maybe that's like, I, not that we have to just talk about advertising because I think, um, you know, Instagram in general, social media, um, there's, you know, huge issues with social media right now. And, you know, the ideas that people are kind of plagued with, um, you know, of how they need to be, how they need to look, um, that are all tied in with other, um, you know, other people's posts um, and how, you know, those images can be edited and can look different. Um, same thing with advertising. You know, it's the the classic formula for advertising to someone is you identify a weakness or something that someone lacks and you say, okay, you don't have this. If you do have this, right. you'll be happy. Um, and that's, and you can see that in so many different advertising lanes. And that's, I think how social media kind of works. It's like, you know, we all, we have this inner belief, like I don't have these things. And then you're shown these things and you go, well, if I do have that, then I'll be happy. And it, it like we're kind of stuck in this ever advertised loop. Um, I don't know if you watch The Social Dilemma. It's a good one if you haven't. But, um, it, you know, we're all kind of stuck in this loop of like we're portraying these things. And, and I've had to kind of stop myself from I don't really shoot like, quote unquote, beautiful people anymore or doll up situations and make people look better than they maybe do in reality. I think I um, I probably lean more into like the, I want to capture things genuinely. I want to, like if someone looks different, I want to be able to capture that in their own special way. Um, and, and I think that if nothing else, just to try and avoid some of those like insecurities that people feel and to take away from some of the, like, I think the evil that like, I don't know, photo editing, I think, can put into the world. Um, that was a roundabout way to explain that. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I like hearing where you're coming from and um, I wasn't trying to talk 
talk shit about advertising photography, of course. <laughs> no, talk, dude, I will talk shit about advertising all day long. <laughs> I'm in it. And I think it's, yeah, I think it, because it, it, honestly, not a lot of people take that into consideration, you know, like, am I being ethical about my yeah. advertising? I think a lot of the time, a lot of advertising agencies, they just want you to buy the thing. And so it's like, we're going to do whatever tactic we need to, to get you to buy the thing. And so some have better causes than others. I always go back to that Sarah McLaughlin ad, you know, the, the arms yeah. of an angel for the, that worked, didn't um, it? whatever the, it did. It totally worked, but it's like, they knew exactly what to do to get you there, you know? And so I think, I guess it's like, at what point are we manipulating people? And at what point are we just being good and uh, like good with our advertising? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's unlikely we'll ever get to a point where like advertising advertisers are like entirely ethical, whatever that means. Um, sure. But I yeah. do think that what is needed, a, a remedy would be on the consumer, image consumer side, not like object consumer, but just like people who consume images, which is like everybody now. Um, and I'm just gonna like, before I before I say my remedy, I mean, I, I fall victim to this as well. Like I know kind of how advertising works, yet I still want things. I know social media, um, yet I still feel um, inadequate compared to what other people I follow have or do. And I also know how, how easy it is to kind of manipulate, manipulate your life photographically to make it look a certain way. And that's what people do. And I, 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 I totally understand that, but I'm still, I still fall victim um, to the kind of psychology of it. Um, and I guess, um, you know, advertisers, um, marketers um, invest a lot of time and energy into understanding human psychology. And so I think the remedy um, is that we just need more educated visual consumers, right? We need, like everyone's taught how to read, uh, in the, at least in this country. And we have like uh, literacy is like something that we all aspire to. Uh, what about visual literacy, right? Like what about educating mm -hmm. our population about images and where they come from, how they're made, figure out what sort of images are coming to you. Like, is this journalism? Is this marketing? You know, is this art? Um, is it all of it? Um, I know it's hard to put it in these little categories, but I think um, without signing cliche, like education is is, is key here. We're like a increasingly visual society. Yeah, I don't think that um, at a young enough age, people are educated about images and kind of how they work and how they're made and the potential psychology and like how people are preying on our insecurities um, with images. Uh, and I think that, you know, not everyone's going to get it, but if we could kind of as a society make that important, I'm not sure where that would be. Maybe schools could kind of dive into that a little bit. Uh, I think by the time you get to college, it's too late. Kids, middle school, um, uh, well, people in middle school are probably old enough to kind of start to wrap their heads around some of the, um, some of the topics that I'm, that I'm talking about. I think, I think that would be really interesting. I'm not sure what that looks like, a kind of wholesale, like visual literacy kind of um, ed education program. Um, it would probably never go, yeah. but I think that's like, I, I can see that being potentially useful for riveting some of these things we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really like that. I think because um, I'm the same way, like advertising gets me just like it does anyone else. And I do it and I understand all the techniques used to advertise properly, you know, how to get into like the consumer's head and how funnels work and how like, you know, what I have a full understanding, I think mm -hmm. of the system and yet it still affects me because I think it is so deeply ingrained in like our biology um, to, you know, re react to things and to, um, you know, it, it goes back into, you know, caveman sure. days of when, you know, we're like, oh, I see that, I want that. And no matter if you, eat, like, you could be like, well, I know that I don't like necessarily need it, you know, you can have that knowledge. You don't really need it, but that doesn't like take away the feelings of like, well, but I really want it. Um, so I think just, yeah, having a better understanding will at least help people to, um, you know, look at these things and be like, okay, I, I see what's going on. Like just to notice it, you know, it's like that kind of the idea of like meditation to just notice these things and then do with it what you will. And I, I think I probably have a better relationship with Facebook and Instagram because of it. Um, but too many people will, you know, be, they'll be online and they'll see something and be like, yeah, that does piss me off. Like, that is horrible. And, you know, oh, that's, that's awful. And then they engage with the content. They get served more of that. They, you know, and I 
friends of my own have been pulled into these deep, dark loops of the internet and stuff like that. And um, I think that, yeah, having an education or just knowing like what, what makes sense and what could have possibly been doctored up a little bit um, can be good. That was a good tangent. Sorry. I didn't mean to go that deep I mean, in the rabbit Maybe hole, it's but. naive to think that just some education will solve the problem. And, and but I mean, I don't, I don't sure. know what, <laughs> I don't know what else, um, what, what else could be done. And again, where it should be done is, is the question. Um, also, I also think like um, image makers could probably be more ethical about, I don't know, not like telling people how it was done or like that things are manipulated, but just like trying to be clear about which lane they're in, I guess. Uh, as I'm saying that I can, I can, I'm already picking out the problems with that, but just, you know, like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, really don't um, when, when I look at images, I often, you know, I, I want to figure out, I, I need, I need some context, right. And like the kind of the platform um, oftentimes is all the context, but sometimes you're served images that have no context, right? And so um, a, a little bit of a little bit of right. background um, research is good to figure out like what it is you're seeing and to kind of unpack some of the maybe some of the intent um, behind that image, right? Uh, again, if, if, is this is this sure. editorial? Is this um, journalistic? Is this uh, is this art? Is this advertising? Um, just trying to figure out kind of where that image lies uh, in the in the environment, the image environment, I think could be useful for figuring out how to how to think about it and deal with it. Yeah, because there are different types of media mm -hmm. like there is, you know, there is satire there is and satire is not journalism, you know, and I think uh, oftentimes those two are taken somewhat seriously. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I think that. Um, yeah, context is everything um, and it is even in art, you know, like having context with art in an art setting can also be really helpful too. So in, in regards to like analog, how do people get started? So if, um, you know, my, for instance, my boss's mom got started way later on in life and started doing photography, went to school for it and stuff. Um, like, what do you think the best way, do you think that an education is necessary? And um, what are your thoughts on that? You might be a little bit biased, um, which is okay. Or you might have, you know, I don't know. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on education and creativity and how you think those two tie together. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely like a learning curve with both digital and analog. But I think people are a little a little scared about about analog just because it's so unfamiliar to most people. Um, and I don't think it's like personally, I don't think it's more or less like difficult. Um, I think there are different um, like different things you have to learn for for digital versus analog. But I do think that most people don't have the facility that analog requires it or like requires. And so I think that is the primary hurdle. Um, you have to be like a real like enthusiast to build a dark room in your basement. Um, and the amount of kind of community dark rooms that are around are dwindling. Right. Right. Um, I, I used to live in, um, I used to live in Portland, Oregon for many years and I was involved in a, organization there called new space it was like a nonprofit arts like photo arts organization and it was i think one of two um like community dark rooms in the city and they eventually closed right so um you know if if portland can't sustain a community dark room like a lot of other places certainly can't i, I know seattle has one I don't know if I don't think Spokane has one that, that I'm aware of. Uh, so I, I think just access um, access to the the facilities um, makes it hard to approach. Uh, and I think that's where educational institutions um, come in, right? Because I mean, we I do have a dark room at, at Eastern. Can anyone just come in and use it? No, unfortunately not. Right. You, you have to be enrolled and and all this. So. Um, as far as digital, though, um, do I think do I think an education and um, is required to be creative? No, absolutely not. But I think that um, just like any just like any practice, the more that you feed it, the more that it grows. I think acknowledging that you don't know lots of things and finding people to mentor you um, is is very is very wise and very effective. Um, whether that's just like someone in your, in your community, someone in like a meetup group, um, or if it's like an actual, you know, a professor or instructor or something like that. I think kind of searching out that relationship um, where you can get the mentorship and and and, and knowledge from um, fr from someone else, uh, I think is really, really, really useful. I don't personally think that 
like learning things strict, like strictly through books is enough. I think you need actual people to interact with and, and, and to talk to <clears throat> and to kind of share with. I think that is something that the classroom provides. Uh, you can get those same experiences in other ways, right? So I don't know if education is required, I but, formal, but I do think, yeah. I do think, um, I do think community is always a good thing, right? And I, finding a community of, of, of makers um, will speed your progress if that's what you're trying to do. If you're trying to like, if you're, if you're trying to dive into this, I mean, this could be anything, right? Um, um, stained glass or, you know, um, concrete poetry or whatever it is, you know, just, just, just finding your community, engaging in dialogue, seeing what's been done, kind of having your mind expanded as far as what is, what is even possible. Um, however you can go about doing that, uh, I, th I think is like, is crucial. So I'm, I'm not sure if that, if that answers the question. I mean, I am in higher ed. Um, and so I am, like you said, I am, I am kind of biased. And I do think that, um, the structure of a class that has, you know, deadlines and critiques and things like that. While people don't often really like it, they find it very valuable. And um, I think it's very valuable. And that, that's something that I personally miss, you know, um, my students are not my peers. Um, my colleagues are my peers, but currently I don't get to see my colleagues. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly missing um, the community aspect and like kind of how that feeds my um, my studio practice. Yeah. No, oh, yeah, I totally agree. As, as someone who went through the, you know, the Eastern um, program, mm -hmm. I think to, if you want to just create, just to create, mm -hmm. um, I think a formal education isn't really necessary. I think that, um, you know, there's people who are extremely talented that have never, you know, touched school. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you want to create to, you know, either monetize it or, um, you know, get deeper into your craft. Um, I think a formal education is almost necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not in not every case, um, because I know that there are people who, you know, haven't and do just fine. Uh, but I think if you're coming into it and you maybe don't have that raw talent, that initial, you know, um, whatever that is, um, I think that, yeah, a formal education can be awesome and can really like just help you know, pull, it can almost just pull that out of you, like pull that creativity out of someone who might not have seen it, you know, or who maybe grew up their whole life, not thinking they were creative or, um, you know, I think that, yeah, like having a whole group of people who are like, who might even have that same similar, where they're like, I don't know if I'm really that good. And like, you know, but you're all thinking that, and then you're all feeding off each other's ideas like that in itself, I think is like the essence of creativity. Um, and it doesn't take like any special talent to be good at it or to excel in it. I think, um, if you want to, you can, you can garner that yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think everyone has creative potential, um, and we we can all like live our lives in a creative way. Not everyone like needs to call themselves an artist, but I think everyone has like this potential well of creativity um, at you know um, that they can they can tap into. Uh, I'm you know I'm I'm just going on a tangent here now, but I, I was as you're as you were speaking, I was I was thinking about. Um, how important, like not just technical skills are, but like historical skills, um, like understanding your medium and what has come before you so that you're not like kind of reinventing the wheel and then you, you, you understand the lineage of, of your craft. Um, you know, when you were, when you were describing the photo of, uh, the stairs and the, the street, the street photo, the, the, the guy looking at the, the perfect angle and everything. I just, uh, I couldn't help but think of um, one of my personal heroes, um, Henri Cartier-Bresson. Um, yeah. And like, he's like, probably so was like good. my first photographic kind of love, you know, I don't mm -hmm. do street photography anymore. And like th that much. And like the, the more I've, uh, the more I've researched it. Um, I, I think there's a lot of um, kind of misconceptions about like that type of work, the decisive moment and all this. Um, but I still think it's super fascinating. Um, so if you, if you're just out making street photographs, but you don't know Cartier-Bresson or uh, Andre Cortez or um, Lee Miller or um, Gary Winogrand or any of these kind of like people that came before, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. Like, you know, um, I, I, I just think that your kind of creative um, output can be tailored a little bit more um, just, just, just by knowing like 
all you know uh, some of what's been what's come before you. You can't know all of it, obviously, but yeah, uh, but you know it's possible, and I yeah. think that's the most important. Like to be able to, you know, be like, oh well. I didn't even know you could do things like that. And then to apply it to where you live. And it would be pretty difficult to make a, uh, you know, a Bresson image in Spokane. Maybe like you could probably get, you know, somewhat close, but I think a lot of his are just very like dynamic and, um, and his atmosphere was, you know, it, yeah, it was just dynamic. Um, but I think to, you know, to look at that and be like, okay, cool. Like, so someone did this before and all they had was a black and white film camera. I have all these other crazy tools at my, you know, disposal, like I could get close to that. Like, and why not, why not aspire to, you know, take fantastic photos, like some of the greats and, um, you know, to go back and look at that. But yeah, like you're saying, if you didn't know that that existed, you might be kind of stuck in this idea of like, yeah, like creativity, it just comes from within. It just is this thing that is in me and whatever. And it's like, no, man, like, I think it comes from looking at people and being like, holy shit, I want to do that. Like, how did they do that and deconstruct it and figure out like, okay, well, you know, if if they did it and this is all they had, like what were the, what were they thinking when they were taking this image and how did they you know how did they arrive at that? And um, I mean to come full circle, I think that was that's kind of the whole idea behind this podcast is to be like you know like what are all of, like what is everyone thinking and how do they arrive at these points that they've gotten to in their lives? Like how did you get to a point of being a, a professor at you know in college and um, and like what are your you know what are your thoughts and how do you how do you look at the world and how does that affect your trajectory in life and your trajectory as a, a creative? So, uh, I mean, uh, also to circle back to like your question about who are my big influences, you know, um, Cartier Brisson was one of my very first um, people that I was like really, really into and Elliot Erwitt, another um, yeah. kind of like street, street photographer. Um, I always thought that both of them had like a little bit of humor um, mm -hmm. to them and I always appreciate that. Um, Elliot Erwitt said that it's like, it's harder to be humorous than tragic. Um, yeah. And that he'd, he'd prefer to be funny, true. you know? Um, yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's so true. There's uh, especially, there's, there's a lot of tragedy, right? And, um, and people are, for some reason, attracted to photographing the tragic. Um, sure. But I think it's, um, it's a lot harder to, 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 um, to kind of capture humor. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It makes me want to go out and shoot something funny. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. huh, like I, because I, I don't, I don't really look for that. I think when I go out and shoot, I'm, um, I, I probably, honestly, I probably lean more into the tragic and the um, nostalgic. I think I, I lean heavily into nostalgia, um, and things that just make you like, uh, just feel cozy or like, like a place you've never been before, but it feels like you have or things like that. But uh, that's a good point. I don't think I've ever leaned into humor as a, as a subject. That could be pretty good. Um, I've also been looking into. I've been. I've been looking at a lot of um, Peter Hujar, one of my favorites. He's really great. Um, there's. I think there's a retrospective traveling around, so I might. That's probably why I've been seeing it. Um, sure. um, and then uh, a lot of other people that I'm kind of interested in are people that are dealing with either social issues. A photographer I really like named Carrie Mae Weems. She's making images. She's appropriating images, um, and then she's kind of like blending. Um, you know her own inappropriate images um, together. Um, I think that's really interesting, and I also I, I'm interested in um, in photography and abstraction, um, and like kind of getting back to this idea about photography and the real. There's a photographer out of LA named Matt Lips, um, okay. and he came to Eastern um, last year, maybe, and he described himself as an artist working with, in, and around photography. I love that. Okay. Um, he didn't say he was a photographer, um, and I've sure. uh, and I've felt this kind of instinct already. And um, I'll often refer to myself as a lens-based artist because I don't think that photographer really sums up what my practice and what my interests are anymore. Um, right. And a, a lot of the people that I'm interested in right now are kind of um, blurring the lines between different media. Um, specifically, I'm interested in like sculpture, um, like where photography and sculpture meet. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm also interested in like where photography and abstraction meet and like kind of the relationship between photography and say painting or um, photography and um, in text. Um, I, I'm, just, I'm just interested in like kind of where the blurry line between these mediums is and kind of finding that and like going there. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of what a lot of my um, 
current practices. Um, I'm taking images of my own, but I'm also appropriating images from various um, locations, like online mostly, um, and then kind of doing various manipulation, physical or digital um, to them um, to kind of get to what I was talking about in the beginning of our conversation, these kind of um, social issues that I'm concerned with, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, that, that's, that's a lot of who I'm looking at right now are, are people who are like kind of blurring, um, blurring boundaries. I still have a deep love for like the kind of straight traditional um, image, but my, my current practice is, is kind of blending installation and sculpture and photography together. Yeah. To that point, I think it's just, sometimes it's just nice to switch things up. You know, I mean, not to like, not to simplify, I guess, everything you just said, but I think like, you know, a, a flat image is fantastic. And then it's like, you know, and then sometimes you just need to delve deep into the arts and, you know, cut things up and, um, you know, yeah, like work analog, work with your hands and, um, you know, fuck a photograph up and yeah. <laughs> change things. And I think that can also be like, that can really help just to like get the creative juices pumping again. Um, and also I think it, you know, it, takes a little bit of the pressure off things too. I don't know if you felt that with, you know, with not, or like with moving into the more artistic side of things is it takes a little bit of that pressure to succeed off because you're not really in this like performative space. You're in more of a, like an um, exploratory, mm -hmm. um, you know, aspect of it, which yeah, I think is really, um, yeah, it just helps. I think it just helps be creative. You don't have a client to appease. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I mean, that's that's probably like why, like part of the reason that I went like down this path and to find myself kind of in academia, and that's probably where I'll be for the foreseeable future with my photography. Yeah. Not that I, like I I love people and I like I like working with them. I just never found the client photographer relationship that that fulfilling. Um, sure. And um, it's probably because I've just not had the right, the right jobs uh, or, or, or I kind of approached, I approached this kind of professional job with a, with the mindset of like a studio artist. Um, mm. And I don't know if those are always like um, conducive to one another. Yeah. Cause I think, I think there are two, two different lanes. Yeah. Like there's, I think that I have a commercial mind and then I also have like just uh, a bit of like an artistic way of operating even where it's like, you know, if you're working with a client, you're, um, you're very tuned into their needs and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and it's just a different state than when you're trying to like dig deep into your own psyche and like, you know, pull things out of it. And it's like, like, you know, what do I feel and how do I portray that? And what, you know, like what really makes your soul churn and um, you just don't really get that with like, I mean, you might in your life, you might get a couple of commercial projects where, you know, like you might get a little bit of that, but rarely does a client give a shit about <laughs> your inner workings right. or, you know, anything like that. So they give a shit about the final image and if it, um, you know, if it's dynamic, if it does the job or not. Yeah. And if it makes their soul churn over themselves or, you know, what they see. And I think that's its own special skill too, is being able to show people what they want to see. And, um, you know, there are people out there that are far better than I am at that. And um, so I, I probably lean a little bit more on the artistic exploration side, as mostly with photography. When it comes to video, I probably do the commercial stuff more, but um, yeah. I mean, I, I do, I do personally wish that I, that I had um, more kind of commercial, um, experience if, if for no other reason that I think, um, I think the aesthetics of, um, advertising and commercial editorial photography can be utilized, um, in the artistic, um, kind of like, yeah. like, 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 like what you mentioned, like, you know, like using, um, using satire, for example, uh, mm -hmm. as, as an approach, like just kind of like understanding the visual language of these different lanes allows you to kind of use them in a creative way, like leverage the, um, leverage the aesthetics to, um, to kind of create your message. Yeah. There's a lot of good, yeah. there's a lot of good examples, um, of, you know, people who are studio artists who use like kind of, um, advertising a studio approach to making their images. Um, although mm. they're, they're, they're bound for a gallery space, not, you know, a website or a magazine. Yeah. So I, I, well, I think yeah, that's I think really the, interesting. 
Yeah, satirical approaches to commercial photography is art in itself. Mm-hmm. It's taking the the um, ridiculous nature of commercial photography and you know juxtaposing that with like I don't know, just by putting it in a gallery. Like I I think of like some of the ads that get put out, and it's like, man, if you were to like frame that and just put it up in a gallery next to like you know abstract art or something, people would be like. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Like, look at the juxtaposition. <laughs> You're like, yeah, it's just commercial work. So, yeah. yeah. Context is everything again. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me today. Um, yeah. Well, uh, so that's Josh Hobson. Um, and then if you want, I will, um, if you want to send me like any social links or anything like that, um, I can link those out. Sure. And cool, man. Yeah. Well, I, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That was fun.